This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. It never got removed. And it should. Oh, shit. You can just press circle, oh. on the, circle on the main menu and just pick whichever level you want to go to. <laughs> Welcome to Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. Your place for resources and in-depth conversations with other game development professionals. I'm your host, John J.P. Podlasic. I've worked at 10 different game companies, starting back in 1989 with the TurboGrafx-16. Over the decades, I've developed games like Mortal Kombat, Avengers Initiative, Beavis and Butthead, and numerous others. I now work for a startup called Level X. But this podcast isn't about me. It's about you and the game development community. So if you have questions or ideas, give a call, 224-484-7733, or go to the gamedevadvice.com website. I have a great episode for you today, so let's kick things off with the new Game Dev Advice. Today's guest is Dave Grace, who has been in the industry since 1996 programming on the original PlayStation, and has worked on just about every console since as well, including PC and Oculus platforms. He's lived in Chicago, San Francisco, Tokyo, and now in Canada, and worked for Viacom, Activision, Square Enix, and his own studio of 12 years. All right, let's kick things off with Dave Grace. Okay, I've got Dave Grace here uh, joining me today. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? Oh, good. Cool. So let's start off. What's your current role? Right. Well, I'm the CTO at uh, Kitazaru, which is the Canadian subsidiary of Sandra Game, which is a company I founded with a bunch of other guys back in 2007. Wow. Okay. So you're going on 12 years. That's great. Yeah, it's been going pretty good. Okay. We're up to about, uh, I think, 110 people. There's mm. about 100 uh Hundred in Foster City, California, and then we've got uh, nine out here in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Okay, so those two locations that makes sense. That's good to have a foothold in Foster City there. All right, so how did you get started in this video game industry? If you can kind of talk me through it. Sure, I think you were there actually. Um, <laughs> when I got out of school, I did uh, audio engineering in Miami, and I got a job doing pager hardware design back when pagers were a thing. And so I was down in Florida for a while and somehow one of the email lists, uh, I think one of the alumni lists from school came across with this job offer for an audio gig in Chicago at a small uh, game studio called Viacom New Media. And they were looking for people to do um, audio 
system design and a, like a cross-platform library doing sound stuff. And I was pretty up on that. And I flew out and did an interview and I, uh, I guess I was good enough. And yeah, got hired and I went to Chicago. Right. And I'm trying to remember back, like we had a pretty good size audio department. There's like Michael Henry and Rob Herman and Martin Wilde. I mean, it was, how big was that department when it, um, at its peak? Yeah, I think that was the four people that you listed plus me. Yeah. And so there was two guys doing software and then two guys doing sound design. But yeah, that was a good, uh, good place to grow and work. And I learned a lot of stuff from the engineers there, particularly like Todd Squires, who is a, who's a badass. He is a wicked smart badass. Yeah. I haven't yeah. seen him in about a year. He, he doesn't live too far from here, but um, yeah, he's, he's amazing. I'm still using his editor. <laughs> was it an E3? Was it E3 or something? E93, yeah. E93, right. Oh, yeah. Fits on a floppy. Right. Fits on a, Yeah, I used that at 3Com a little bit when we were trying to edit some stuff. All right. So can you kind of dive more into the, the audio programming you were doing? Because it was software. So it, I was a, a musician growing up and everything. So I knew my way around MIDI which is the, mm-hmm. the spec you use for keyboard control of everything. So knowing that, and uh, basically we wanted to write a sort of a wavetable synthesis uh, player to do, to do music playback. And then uh, on PlayStation and PC, so you could play back like sequence music, like what you'd now think of as a, uh, what do you call those things? Like Rex files, basically, or uh-huh. um, that kind of stuff. You want to be able to trigger samples and pitch shift them appropriately to do musical notes. So, we got all that working. And then um, I think I was there for about a year and a half, 96, 97. Mm-hmm. And um, somehow I, got, I heard of an opportunity out in California doing basically the same kind of thing. And California is much warmer. And I said, let's go try that. <laughs> right. And yeah, so that was my first job in the Bay Area. And then San Mateo, and that was a small company called Z-Axis, which was an independent studio. Mm-hmm. And I stuck around there for quite a long time. They did the BMX, was it? Dave Mira, or yep, what was that? That was my game. I was the lead on that. Oh, wow. So I did audio for a little while, uh, like two, three years, and I had basically wrote the same kind of engine, but doing it on uh, PlayStation 1, uh, N64, Dreamcast, PC, and then later on PS2, Xbox. Uh, uh, it pretty much supported all that stuff. And at some point, it was all working, and they're like, hey, we need someone to do some game stuff and physics. And turned out I'm actually not too bad at that. And so I did. Uh, Physics on the Thrasher uh, Skate and Destroy game, which was actually oh, Rock, yeah. Rockstar's very first title. Um, wow. Bit of trivia. And then uh, after that, BMX, uh, we went to do this prototype for a BMX thing, and that ended up being Dave Mirror, a freestyle BMX, and that sold really well. And then yeah. BMX 2, and then the ill-fated uh, BMX 3. And then uh, right about then, Activision bought the studio, and so I worked for Activision for a few more years. And then um, after a while, Six other guys and me decided, you know what? We could have our own company and do this. And uh, so we split off and formed our studio and we're still here. Wow. No, that's great that um, you guys had the idea and you've actually been going for 12 years. Yeah, there was one break in the middle. Uh, We kind of had to downsize a lot. And at the time I had moved out to Tokyo and was working from there. And so Mm -hmm. I had to get a job and I worked for Square Enix for six months on uh, what became Final Fantasy XV. Huh. No, that's cool. I'm sure that was an interesting experience. Yeah. Where? Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it was on Final Fantasy. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you hear the stories and all those kind of things. So I, I'm sure that that was... Uh... I mean, I went out there having not worked for a really, you know, giant developer with a huge track record before and thinking, okay, I'm going to learn some serious stuff from these guys because they must be amazing, right? And mm-hmm. it turns out they just throw a ton of people at it. 
and it's yeah. they don't do anything any smarter than anybody else. They just <laughs> they just pay people less and throw more people on, and uh, it was a slog. Yeah, that's some of the things I've heard too. Is like you know you're like oh my neighbor must have it really refined and figured out, and it's just like you know they get halfway down, they're like holy crap, now what are we gonna do? And then they just like reboot, and you know they had more than their share of problems. It's it's not this refined yeah science that you would you would think. What about uh, advice that you would give someone that's, say, looking to get their first job in the industry? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, we started so long ago, it's a bit of a double standard because like if -hmm. somebody had come to me knowing as little as I knew when I was starting in 20 years ago, they're pretty much not going to get too lucky. Um, On the flip side of that, there's a lot of tools you can just download and use now. So, So basically, there's no excuse for you not getting Unity or or Unreal and, right. and building something and having a prototype up and running that you can show off. So I think my advice would be, you know, if you're trying to apply for a job somewhere, the, the best thing you can do is build a playable demo and send it out. You know, here's a link to it, post it on online. It's basically all free to do this stuff and show that you can do something pretty cool and interesting. You know, take some initiative and build something on your own. And I would say that the some of the things that are really in high demand all the time are people that have uh, really strong shader kung fu and um, VFX artists. We are always short of VFX artists. So those guys, pretty much if you're an expert on one of those things, you can write your own ticket. I think tech artists too, right? Somebody that can... Um, yeah, riggers and tech artists tend to tend to fit in yeah. any time. Yeah. Um, well, especially too, like a tech artist that can improve pipelines and write code and uh, and do stuff that blends into like, say, doing shader work and those kind of things. Um, pipelines. Um, yeah. Th- those, those are always in demand. Yeah. Python jockeys. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to ask about just kind of like what advice would you give an engineer or an aspiring CTO? Uh, just, you know, somebody that's already in the engineering track and, you know, say halfway through their career or I don't know, five, 10 years in, into it. Like what kind of advice would you give on the engineering side? Um, machine learning is like sort of the hot ticket thing, but I ha- honestly don't have a really good application for it in games uh, to point you mm-hmm. out yet. But it's one of those things where you, if you can put it on your resume and become a master of it, it's going to get some attention and people will be excited about it. Um, it's good to know more than just one little niche of things. You should be able to yeah. understand the architecture of a full game from start to finish. You know What are the trade-offs when doing a- animation in one style or versus like doing things procedurally, what uh, different kinds of UI systems, and then you know all the way to per platform stuff, like what are the advantages of, you know, how fast is a PS4 GP versus Xbox One, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so good to be well-rounded, good to keep up on latest technology as in any job, really. Um, yeah. You just don't want to be obsolete or, or useless. Um, what other kind of uh, advice would you give somebody trying to get in the industry or who, who's say working in the industry? Yeah, I think one strong piece of advice would be don't burn bridges because it's actually not as big an industry as you think. And, and some, mm-hmm. there is some level of connection from everybody to everybody else. So yeah, if you do need to leave a studio, if they do downsize, don't leave on bad terms because there's a really strong chance you're going to be calling up those people or they're going to be calling up you later on to try to find another job. So if you can always mm-hmm. maintain good relationships with people, that's a really important thing. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. It, um, I think people look at like, oh, it's a huge, it's giant industries like the movie industry and it's huge. I don't know in the movie industry, so I can do whatever I want here because no one's going to know. And it's like, 
man, this industry is so small and it's like, you know, one or two degrees of Kevin Bacon, you know, but everyone's connected somehow. And um, yeah, if you go around doing crazy shit or burning bridges or uh, it will then later come back to haunt you. And um, absolutely. I could think of a couple of cases that I probably shouldn't talk about. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I could think of cases too, where there's people and you, you just, sometimes you see the resume It's like year, year and a half, year, year and a half. You're like, no one's called their bluff on this yet. It was like, how, how do they staying employed when they go around doing crazy crap like this? And uh, it's like, it, it's going to run out at some point because it's, they're going to burn, burn all their options out. And um, their name is dirt from crap they've done. And uh, yeah, and then they're going to be shocked. And on the flip side though, if you do a really good job and you work at some place even for a short time, but you know, if you have a good reputation, like this guy was awesome, you know, I would love to work mm-hmm. with him again. That's going to pay off down the road. So yeah, just always, you know, yeah. treat people the way you want to be treated and show your best stuff all the time. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that also. Because yeah, there's there been people I worked with that, you know, were in entry-level roles, but, you know, they worked hard and they had a good attitude and they got stuff done. And then, you know, a year or two later, it'd be like, we're looking for somebody. And I'm like, hey, you know, and, and it was Jonathan Guy. He's up at Ravensoft. I'll ping him and see what he's doing because, um, you know, he went, uh, you know, above and beyond what was asked and figured out how to do things and did great work and had a good attitude. And then, um, yeah, it works both ways and people will uh, look for, you know, opportunities to help people who do good work. Um, yeah. I think so. a lot of testers have worked their way into production that way. They've been, you know, a really outstanding detail oriented tester and, and mm-hmm. somebody later on is like, yeah, we need an associate producer for something. And then that's the person they're going to call. Right. Yeah. And um, I think it's, it's changed in some ways versus what it used to be because back in the day it was kind of like QA was almost like boot camp, right? It was almost like can you survive the gauntlet of you know these crazy hours playing buggy games for crappy pay and and still keep your shit together and do good work and um, that's how it used to be and now there are schools that are like focusing on you know game production um, and people are coming out and. Uh, like out of the box, you know, straight from school, being great at production and having learned about different methodologies and working on teams. Um, I, just from my experience, I'm thinking like full sale. There's been some great people, like the, the masters of uh, game production. I think was uh, the uh, title. And um, out in Utah, University of Utah has like a uh, master's game production track that we've talked to some pretty bright people from there. Cool. But um, yeah. It's a tough job too. And I don't think people, because I, I did it for four or five years and I don't think people appreciate it from a distance, but the really good ones are appreciated, especially by the engineers, you know, because they, they find those bugs and they'll sit in that dev system and they'll, they'll figure out how to uh, replicate it so that the engineer can fix it, you know, and um, yeah, good QA people are definitely useful. Yeah. I think attention to detail is sort of the overarching theme, you know, whether you're mm-hmm. an artist or programmer or a tester or anything, like if you're the person that stands out as being really, you know, you really care about the details and you really care about the quality of what you're, what you're producing, it's going to show and that's going to open doors for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Cause right. Artists that can, you know, follow all the instructions and, and, and they give assets that are, you know, right. Poly count and textures and, um, aren't a mess that people are like, Oh, we got to fix all this. And go find that person. They got to fix it. You know, so it is about, you know, it's craftsmanship really in some ways. Yeah, it's totally. about your craft and, and being focused on that and, and not being like, Oh, I don't want to be doing this. I'm going to be doing something else, but just, you know, this is your craft. You're learning it, you're improving it. And, um, 
you know, having that sense of ownership and pride when you do the work that um, it'll pay off. Okay. What's been like your favorite or top two games or projects that, that you've worked on? Um, yeah, top one is probably Dave Mirror BMX. Uh, that was pretty much my baby. I, I spent like a year of working seven days a week. Um, it, and, but it was because like it was basically me doing the entire game code and then we had an engine guy and a, another guy just doing front end, but I got to own the whole thing. And so I wanted to show I could make this thing that was, was really good. Um, so wow. I just, I just dove into it and, and it came out at exactly the right time when BMX bikes were getting really popular and we had a great license and the, the publisher mm-hmm. was really good and it sold super well. So I would say that's about as good as it, as it ever gets. Yeah. That was a big deal in its time. How many millions was it? It was somewhere 2.7 to 3, depending, I think, for, for BMX 1. Yeah. BMX 2 was somewhere around 1. But yeah, it did, it did really well. And it basically kept the claim from going out of business for at least a couple of years. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It was a claim. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to remember. Yeah. The, the guys from New York. Wow. Okay. Yeah, they were characters. <laughs> um, the other one, I would say, is a Sly Collection, where we did a port of the... Um, the PS2 Sly Cooper one, two, three games and ported to PS3. Hmm. And then later on, I ported, uh, we ported to Vita. Um, those ones were done by Sucker Punch. Those guys are absolute badasses from a programming standpoint, like head and shoulders above any other code base I've ever worked on. Uh, hmm. So that was cool to work on because you got to actually see this code. And that's, that's been the one time I've, you know, read through some stuff and been like, wow, these guys are really much better than me. Um, so it gives you something to work towards. But they're still doing amazing stuff, and I'm I'm sure it's because they still got the same guys like Chris Zimmerman. There is just just amazing. Uh, hmm. No, the, and and just to be honest, when I hear engineers say like, "Wow, that's really good code," that's a huge compliment, you know, because ninety percent of the time, engineers are like, "Oh, this code's all crap. <laughs> I, I'm just going to rewrite." Ninety percent of the time, know, it is. Yeah, I know. I'm always like, "Oh, you're killing me, man! You got to rewrite all the code. What's it going to do to our deadline?" It's but that's that's the answer I usually hear. So the fact that that you were uh, impressed with their code is that that says volumes. Yeah, right? I mean, at three games, I think you know, of all three, I only fixed one honest to goodness bug, something that shipped on on the originals. Wow! And the rest of it was all just porting, and everything just worked. It was amazingly well done. Yeah, I mean, because normally those porting gigs are just train wrecks, right? You're inheriting this giant sloppy mess, and there's no documentation, and the people are gone. If you need to reach out to them to to ask how something works, so yeah. That must, have, that must have been uh, amazing. Yeah, that one worked, worked really well. And Metacritic came out. It was like 83, I think, for the port. Um, it helped that the, the original games were really good, but um, it was super solid. Everything was like came out on time, on budget, and mm-hmm. just uh, really proud of that one. Yeah. Who published that one again? Uh, Sony, it's Sony Internal. Yeah, Sony Internal. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, so what are you curious about right now, just in the industry? Um, I would say I'm curious about machine learning, but not quite enough to to suck it up and learn it. I've been playing around a lot with uh, like Node.js and doing server client stuff, uh, doing like real-time stats and things for games, which is kind of fun. Um, a lot of the other stuff I'm playing with is more just work-related. I've been doing custom animation nodes in Unreal and just general game code in there, but that's, that's just more paying the bills. But mm-hmm. I would say machine learning is one of those things that's out there and I'm trying to figure out a good excuse to learn it and get around to it, but I just haven't quite got there yet. Yeah. Can you talk about what you're working on now or what you published previously or? Um, sure. Well, I mean, last year we were, we did, uh, we partnered with Toys for Bob on the Spyro remastered trilogy. So 
SpongeBob was doing games one and two, we took over Spyro three. I honestly underestimated just how much stuff was in that game. And mm. so it, like you said, it does become a train wreck, especially cause this one wasn't one, wasn't a straight port. We didn't have any code. We had to rebuild everything from scratch. That was um, a significant amount of work as we got towards October and had to ship for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we, my company's been working with Oculus a bunch the past couple of years. We did a Marvel um, tie-in four-player co-op uh, game in VR on the Rift called mm-hmm. Marvel Marvel VR Powers United or something. And now we're doing um, a hack and slash like wizards and swords and sorcery kind of thing called Asgard's Wrath, which will be coming out this year. And so that's been keeping everybody busy for a little while. Cool. Um, yeah, and that kind of bleeds into my next question, kind of like what are your thoughts about AR and VR? Yeah, honestly, I haven't played with AR much. Um, most of what we've been doing stuff on the Rift and on the you know the next uh, next platform that's going to be coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and VR is uh, cool, especially once you add the touch controllers in. Once you once you have your hands out in front of you, you really become much more immersed in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the price point is still pretty steep because you have to have a pretty big honking PC to run it. And, yeah. Uh, yep. So it's not quite mass market enough, but uh, I'm. I'm convinced that will get fixed sooner or later. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a neat platform. It's sort of annoying to develop on because you're constantly taking this thing up and off your head. And, uh, and so you're like, oh. you, you want to hit a break point, right? And the whole screen freezes and you have to pop the, the rift like up onto the top of your head and like debug it. And then you like hit run and go back in. And so it's physically, it's a pain to develop on. Huh. Um, but it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a cool tech to, to goof around with. Yeah. Well, and of course, the new tech is the the Quest coming out and stuff, which I keep talking about on this show. Just it seems really interesting to me, just in the sense that the price point, the uh, accessibility, the not being so tethered, and um, yeah, it's not going to have the graphic fidelity, but you don't need a four thousand dollar computer with a giant video card and cables all over your place and cameras and all that crap too. So, yeah, um, I'm uh, very excited to see what happens with the Quest. Yeah, it's been. Uh, I've actually got one on my desk. It's uh, a step down from Rift, but um, it's not not too bad. You just really have to control the draw calls, um, so mm-hmm. you kind of have to optimize different stuff for it. But it's um, yeah, it's going to be cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm. It's getting more mass marketing. It's getting more accessible. That kind of stuff. Um, so, what about potential threats? Do you see to the game industry along with opportunities? Um, yeah, well, threats like. Obviously, everything changed right around 2007. Like before that, you know, before iPhone, uh, we could mm-hmm. make a good living selling $40 games on consoles, and all of a sudden, those games disappeared, and they'd be, you know, 99 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, so having more of that race to the bottom kind of stuff is not going to be good for the industry. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, having a billion devices out there where people can play your game is, you know, good if you can compete in the marketplace. Um, so that's that's plus and minus. Um, mm-hmm. If I was an animator, I'd be worried about what people are doing with machine learning to generate realistic motion. Um, yeah, that would uh, that would scare me. I don't see a big threat to programmers on that side yet, but um, I do see a lot of like outsourcing companies that are like, "Yeah, we're going to partner with you, and we'll do outsource code." And of course, what they want to do is just then, you know, the next job they'll just do the job by themselves, right? And so yeah. if we're going to compete against people in Bangalore, that's uh, we're not going to win economically. So that's a bit of a threat. Mm-hmm. And 
I don't know. The stuff that really scares me is I don't really know too many people from this industry who are actually, you know, retired. Um, <laughs> so that's not a, yeah. you know, pretty much everybody leaves the industry or they go to teaching or, you know, if they're lucky, they have a company that gets bought out by somebody and then they, and they just cash in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm opting for number three if possible, but there's not a clear path to like financial security here. No, you're right. And um, yeah, I think the stat I'd heard was seven years is the average tenure in the industry, I think. And um, I'm not sure how accurate that is uh, currently, but I'd heard that somewhere before. And yeah, you're right. There is a lot of um, just instability and companies coming and going. And since it's, you know, hits driven, you have a few duds and then you're, they close down or even if you make money, um, they want to make more money. So they still close a bunch of uh, studios and lay people off like Activision recently did. So um, yeah, there is definitely, it's, it's not for the weak hearted to be in this industry. Yeah. I'm not actually sure what the solution is. And you know, the, the movie industry has a union system, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that ship is too late to sail in games because uh, you would have to then actually enforce it by not having uh, people be able to hire non-union talent or, you know, right. having mixed workforce. So it's a really tricky one. Yeah. And there seems to be a big surge in um, talking about the union thing. Um, having been on the side where I've seen, especially like the big media companies, um, they have a policy that says, you know, no union. So they find ways to work around that. And there's, especially in areas like in uh, audio, uh, you know, for voice talent, they have signatures, which are kind of, you know, the middleman, as they say, so that you can hire union talent at a no union publisher uh, to skirt around it that way. So, you know, they have the best intentions with the union stuff, but then because of some of the restrictions it puts and, and some of the companies that just have that policy of no union, and then they find ways to skirt around it. And then, um, yeah, it's a complicated issue. And um, it's something I'm curious about. I'm interested to see where it goes, but it's not just, oh, we'll just get unions. That's going to fix everything. And that's going to make sure that people don't get laid off because I think that's a naive um, approach. It's it's how does it make work conditions better? Uh, so in the event there is a layoff that people are taken care of and, and maybe um, they're taking better care of while they're there. But yeah, it's it's a very deep tricky question yeah i'm sort of curious how that works in hollywood with all the outsourcing vfx studios like because those aren't union based right and it's certainly not the ones that are not in the u.s um they haven't been telling great stories about how they're treated either so maybe that's a bad comparison yeah no i i, I just know there's like was it weta or weta and, the, and those companies where they it's very much you know you're a hired gun right you go in you, you have a six nine twelve month stint um, you're paid hourly, you get time and a half. So, you know, you're not, you know, working for free, but it's not a lot of stability also, right? You, you, you kind of go from gig to gig that way. And, um, I think your money goes in towards your union dues and, and things like that, but it's, I, I don't know a lot about it either. I, I just know there are those, um, those other areas where they have it and, uh, we'll see if there's crossover or, or bleed into the game industry to take best practices from there. Um, not sure though. Okay. Um, so what about a funny or odd story from working in the industry? Hmm. Good one. Um, we did a space invaders reboot. This is must've been back in, uh, Hmm. like 2099, something like that. It was on PlayStation one. And somehow 
I, I think I just did audio code on it, but somehow this thing got all the way through uh, Sony testing with the circle button. You just press the circle button on the main menu and it takes you to a level select. It was supposed to be a debug menu that was compiled out on the shipping build and it never got removed and it shipped. Oh, shit. You could just press circle, oh. on the, circle on the main menu and just pick whichever level you want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> just like skip right ahead. Yeah, like, wait exactly, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they left the debug menu. And... <laughs> wow. We had one on uh, Sly Collection. I was like getting way to the end. We're trying to ship the final, uh, final gold master. And there was something where a TRC was coming back from Sony saying um, mm. I was ha- using the wrong version of this library that got linked in. And I, I didn't have a newer version. And even if I had, it wouldn't have linked with the, some of the other stuff we were using. Mm-hmm. So the solution I had was to just open up the library file in a hex editor and find where it actually had the version numbers oh, in, change uh, it? in ASCII and just change it. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> yep, you're on 15.163. Now you're up to code. Yep, exactly. There you go. Very fast. Yeah. It's so interesting on the console side because what was it? TCRs and TRCs, like uh, Sony was one and Microsoft was the other because, you know, we can't agree on that. We have to call them. You're calling it that? Well, we're going to call it this, you know, technical requirements checklist. And yeah, um, it's a big book. Yeah. Yeah. There were people that at Midway that, they specialized in that. And that was just, that was their niche in QA was to be the, the keepers of those books and, and know those things inside and out. You know, all the tricks of pulling a controller when you're booting the disc and, you know, it has to recover. Man, it just, yeah. there's some nightmares around that Play stuff. in German to see all the text overlap all the boxes. Yeah, right. Cause it's always German. It's always German, yeah, because it's always like 30% longer and it goes over the boxes and you're like, oh man, you know, it's like, or there's content, you know, that you you can't have in, in Europe. So then you're doing different versions just because of this one thing here or there that can't be in the German version. And um, yep. yeah, it's, uh, it's tricky. Okay, quick question break. What are your thoughts so far? Do you have a topic idea, a question to ask, or a guest suggestion? Let me know at 224-484-7733 or on the gamedevadvice.com website. Um, what kind of platforms are you guys uh, developing for right now, if you can say? Um, no, we, yeah, we were just doing a PS4, Xbox One, and uh, Oculus, and mm-hmm. PC. Okay. Actually, the, yeah, the Switch is the one I have not worked on yet. Of all the platforms going back to like PlayStation One, I think I've I've worked on pretty much everything except the Switch. Hmm. Yeah, which has been a big hit for uh, Nintendo, and it's it's cool. Yeah, although Nintendo is always kind of tricky sometimes too, because at least before they didn't they weren't too concerned about third party and things like that. It was just kind of like yeah, we make our money with our games and you know do our own thing. But, yeah, it's um, really uncommon for a third party publisher to make money on Nintendo. Yeah, it's pretty much first party makes tons, and then it just drops right off. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. But they do a fantastic job. I'm super impressed by Zelda. Yeah. Uh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, they get the quality part down. They have their loyal fans. And um, it seems like every other hardware release, they hit it out of the park. And the other ones, they, they tank, you know, whether it's Virtual Boy or then a Wii or a Wii U and now Switch. Um, yeah, it's always, I'm sure I'm going to get some Nintendo fan. like <laughs> flaming me, but it's like sometimes they, you know, I give them credit. They, they take shots, you know, it's not just about graphics and putting bigger chips in there and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, you, you want to talk a little bit about 
living in Japan. It's a, it's a pretty interesting uh, story. Yeah. Um, we moved out in 2011, like right after the big earthquake. Um, mm-hmm. We'd been planning to do it a year before. My, my wife's from Japan, so we were moving out so the kids could be with their grandparents and, and just because it was really cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I uh, moved to Tokyo and I just telecommuted from there. And, uh, and in 2013, I had to get a, I worked for Square Enix for six months mm-hmm. and then till the company ramped back up and then I jumped back on. Um, it was really cool. I love the place. It's an amazing country and a great place to be. And we would have probably stayed if we could afford to put the kids in international school there. Very expensive out there. Yeah. In Tokyo, right? But yeah, Tokyo can be pricey. So yeah. we, uh, yeah, we came to Canada. How was, uh, how did Canada equate into that? Was there a family connection or just? No, not really. It's, it's not actually too far from where I grew up in New York, but, um, okay. it's our, our CEO is from Ottawa and, uh, mm-hmm. Ontario has a nice new tax break for game developers. If you want to open an office here, you, uh, there's a 30%, yes, north of 30%, basically kickback. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really cheap to hire people here and, uh, kids can go to school in English and, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, that, that's all of Canada, that tax break, right? Cause that's why no, it's, Ontar- it's Ontario. Okay. And, and it only applies to Ontario residents. Um, so Ottawa is kind of strange. We're right on the border with Quebec. Um, right. So it only applies to half our staff because the ones that live on the half, uh, South of the river. I thought Montreal had, uh, kickbacks too, because you know, Ubi's got 5,000 employees up there and stuff. Yeah, they totally do. And they, I think they had theirs first, um, but it depends on where the, you know, where the business is headquartered, right? So mm. we're an Ontario business and so ours applies to Ontario. I see. Yeah, no, that, that that's, and, and that explains why there's just such a, a big gaming community in Canada because of those tax credits and um, things like that. And no, that's cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a good place. I'm curious why the U.S. doesn't do more of that, but I guess they, they don't feel they have to. Um, you know, there's been regional areas, like th- th- there was... Few years back, there was a big push down in uh, Louisiana, of all places. Baton Rouge was uh, rolling out the red carpet and uh, attracting game companies down there, and they were doing um, tax credit kickbacks and things. And some studios set up shop down there. I, I know there's a huge EA testing facility and things in Baton Rouge because one of our wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's like right on the campus too of. Uh, one of the schools down there, uh, they have some of the buildings and stuff, but yeah, Baton Rouge, cause you know, that's another place you're just kind of like, um, no offense to Baton Rouge people, but it just seems like really hot and muggy and stuff in the summers just would be kind of brutal, but they were able to, you know, attract some, some game companies down there. I've heard of a few going down there. Um, yeah, no, it, uh, it makes sense. Uh, it, you know, it attracts tech and, uh, good jobs and things like that. So you think states would kind of want to initiate that more, but We'll see. Yeah, I think there was one for a proposal for New York last year that uh, didn't end up approving in the legis- legislature, so it didn't uh, didn't get there. Mm-hmm. What about anything I should have asked you, but but didn't? You're like, damn it, John, we should have talked about X. Um, yeah, I was gonna say I haven't I haven't heard people on your podcast talk about like, which games have really impressed them or what's their favorite game they're playing lately, and and you know why. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have not. And staying up to date on things, to be honest, my Xbox Ones are in uh, my son's room, so I'm woefully behind on the on the console side. But yeah, what about you? Is there any anything you're playing lately? Or um, my kids have been playing through Zelda, the uh, Breath of the Wild, and that's been that's been really cool. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the climbing mechanics are really nice. I'm, I'm sort of an animation nerd, so I've been really getting into how they're doing IK in the hands and beat to like keep them on the walls. It's just, I think it looks at least as good as Un- uh, Uncharted, which is probably set the bar for that. Yeah. Um, so that's been fun to watch. I think all-time most impressive game, I still go with Metal Gear Solid 1 because that mm. for, the, for the machine and for the hardware and what they did was just mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, I had a period you know, on the PlayStation with Gran Turismo and just trying to get the you know, gold trophies and, and unlocking cars, and I spent a lot of time with that. Um, I haven't found a game to stick like that, although I, I do like the Forza uh, driving games, and my sons and I used to play those when they were smaller. Um, it, it is almost kind of like Overload, too, because there's just there's so many games um, out there, uh, you know, between the consoles and, and mobile and stuff like that, that uh, it's hard to find something that sticks. Um, I've thought about getting a Switch because that would be a good device. It's a good form factor, and it, uh, I think it would be something fun to play with. Yeah, my kids are a little younger, so I thought it was a no-brainer for them. Yeah. Um, yeah, because they're, they're uh, 6, 10, 12, something like that? or 10 and 12, yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are perfect ages. Yeah. Cool. Um, so where can people find you online? Uh, website, Twitter, things like that? Probably best bet is just Sanzaro. Um, Sanzaro.com. That's, uh, that's got all our latest projects and our, uh, our pages for job listings and everything because we are always looking for talented people. Right. And are most of the jobs in Foster City or Ottawa too? Uh, Ottawa too, but, um, yeah, Foster City and, uh, and basically we're, we're always looking for people that have strong Kung Fu. Yeah. As we are uh, also at level X. Yeah. There's, uh, there's always a need for great talent and, uh, yeah, I have many roles I am trying to fill and we keep filling roles and there's still more to be filled. So yeah, it's, uh, people who have talent are in demand. So it's, um, it's, it's good for you if you're in those shoes. All right. Well, great. Thanks Dave for, uh, for being on this episode and um, we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks, John. It's been really good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Game Dev Advice, the Game Developers Podcast. If you found it interesting or helpful, please leave a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe. I have a lot of great episodes coming out. As always, I want to hear from you, the game development community. So give me a call at 224-484-7733 or reach out on the website, gamedevadvice.com. I want to know your struggles, your questions, and your ideas. Since the podcast is really about you, the fellow game developer, and our game development community. Thanks and take care. Hey, just a quick note. I'm going to be at GDC next week. So look me up and you can find me over at the Level X booth S248. See you at GDC maybe.